on campus. We started a cyber competition club, and this lets kids who are maybe not focused on a STEM program, but at least are hobbyists of computers or technology, gives them a way to interact with other kids and participate in competitions like National Cyber League and, and some of these other hacking or, or capture the flag activities where they are exposed to these concepts and may provide, again, some of those maybe job skills or at least knowing the lingo coming into some of these job interviews. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Aaron Balio, CISO of the University of Oklahoma. Aaron and I talk about his move from the DOD to higher education, how to secure an environment that's going through major organizational changes, and why he built a student-run security operations center, how that's helped students find great jobs and contributed to the university's security posture. Managing risk through an organizational shift is a challenge. A helpful tactic can be standardizing technology across formally siloed departments. But in the case of the University of Oklahoma, building a SOC run by students is really what changed the game. Okay, Aaron, thank you so much for being on the show today. If you would, for those that don't know you, please introduce yourself. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me today. My name is Aaron Balio. I'm the CISO for the University of Oklahoma. I've been here with the university about five and a half years now, and in the CISO role only for the last six. So it's uh, kind of fitting for the show, the new CISO. I, I'm still kind of feeling it out. Uh, prior to coming to OU, I did 11 years with the Department of Defense, primarily the Air Force, but was civil service and then contractor and lived virtually all over the place, almost as active duty, but as civil service and did information assurance, you know, security classifications and, and uh, security engineering. So definitely um, a wide departure coming to education, but it's been a pretty fun adventure so far. Aaron, what's the big change being in, in civil service and you said you were in Germany and all the rest? What's, what's the switch from going from a DOD job into education at the highest level? If you have 30 <laughs> seconds to tell me, like what's the shift? So I, I think I'm stealing this quote, but or at least the concept that you know, the Department of Defense is primarily concerned about keeping secrets, right? Everything that they do, you know, they want to operate with with the highest classification and, and keep their secrets um, safe. When you transition to the higher ed space, you know, the, the ultimate goal is to give away all the secrets, right? <laughs> mm. We want to impart education and knowledge and and so the community is very open and trying to exchange ideas and it so it's it's a completely different kind of paradigm that you're working with in higher ed 
for those that might be considering a career in higher ed to go be the CISO at a university in general, not necessarily as, as it uh, applies to University of Oklahoma, but in general, mm-hmm. what are some of the perks? You know, if you're, especially if you're further along in your career, in general, you know, if you've only worked in the DOD or corporate America, what's some, what are some benefits to it? Tell me about that lifestyle over at, uh, at OU. Yeah. And I think this is actually fairly similar to, to certain industries and, and maybe especially the Department of Defense, but there is kind of an intrinsic value in education and higher ed specifically because, you know, you're, everything you do is, is meant to support the student, right? And to, to help educate them and to help them and prepare them, you know, for life in the world. With the Department of Defense, that intrinsic value is, you know, everything we do is meant to support, you know, that warfighter, that soldier. And I know other industries are also geared toward, you know, the similar types of values where you're supporting an end user. But, you know, it's, it is very satisfying to, to be able to not only be among young people and, and kind of have that energy, but just know that, that what you're doing is supporting their experience, even if it's just, you know, keeping the Wi-Fi safe and letting them game. It's all about their journey, um, their, their education experience. So it, it can be very rewarding in that aspect. So we're going to get to that later in the show, especially some of the some of the grassroots work you, you've done and teaching and, and a lot of that. I want you to get selfish for a second though, and talk about like for you as a human and for your family, there's got to be opportunity there in general, right? If you're, maybe it's additional education for yourself, maybe it's a different work-life balance, maybe it's a different set of opportunities that maybe many of us miss, you know, like I spent most of my career in big megacorp sometimes cold organizations, right? Uh, and it was defined, but it maybe wasn't as close to the heart. So, you know, you have, I think, some interesting opportunities that I want to kind of dig in a little bit as it relates to to Aaron, to you. Is there a couple things that for somebody who maybe hadn't thought about higher ed, CISO positions that, that, that might entice them? Well, I'm not going to lie. The education sector typically pays... And I don't know, I'm sure the numbers have changed, but when I started five years ago, the pay was about 12 to 17% less than the commercial sector. And so when you're in areas like, say you're working at, at uh, you know, UC Berkeley, where your backyard is literally Silicon Valley, or even University of Texas, where you've got, you know, booming technology startups in Austin and Dallas Fort Worth those those tend to poach you know from the higher ed space because in higher ed we we have a lot of you know direct experience with researchers and you know implementing new technologies and then they get stolen you know from from these companies who are literally in your backyard so because of the pay um now that being said universities tend to have other incentives to try to keep good talent and this again will will vary widely depending on on the state and the and the institution but like at OU all employees get free tuition for dependents 
Oh, wow. Someone like me who has a bunch of kids and they're coming up through high school and kind of making those choices now to, to go to to a university, that's a big benefit for me. <laughs> for me. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, it, it varies. Um, but just as far as work-life balance, those that's kind of another area where higher ed tends to focus more time and attention because they can't compete necessarily um, on the salary front. So a lot of people can can kind of work eight to five and be able to come home and leave their job or be able to, you know, participate in, in student groups, find ways of, of teaching or just being active, you know, in the kind of that university community that that gives back in, in ways that, you know, maybe an extra salary you know, 10 or 15% on the salary may not, you know, be able to provide, provide the same reward. So certainly there are lots of other advantages that may not be directly salary related. Yeah. Well, first off, there's more than just money, but there's also in this, as we get older, many of us learn, but I think there's a lot of guys out there and gals that would say, look, you'll get a 10 to 15% haircut, but you'll get free education for your children, that begins to add up pretty quickly. Right. Right. Uh, to the positive, right? So that's a that's a really positive thing, I think, that some might overlook. When we spoke earlier, you had kind of an interesting story about how you got your job at OU. How did that happen? It was actually pretty wild and, and I don't think it's common, you know, and I don't use LinkedIn a lot, but that's what happened is is the university found me on LinkedIn. We had team member here who's just a LinkedIn ninja. She reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you have ties to Oklahoma. You have the skill set we're looking for. Would you want to come apply to this position? And it was a a director for security operations and architecture. And uh, I was happy contractor in the Waco area. Did not, you know, was not looking to make a change at all. But I thought, you know, this this could be interesting. So I went up and interviewed and just fell in love with the campus, with the people. And, you know, my wife's from the Oklahoma City area. So it just it it made sense to me. But like I said, I've never had anything like that happen over LinkedIn since and probably (laughs) and hadn't had anything before that. So, yeah, I was going to ask, like, what what was so glamorous about your (laughs) I think it was just that, that I'd lived in Oklahoma before. And, and I will admit, you know, the cyber community here in Oklahoma is very small. You know, we we have a lot of local uh, conferences and shows and, and we kind of run into each other and recognize each other. And there's not a huge community here. And so for someone like the university who might be struggling to find new talent, uh, you tend to have to look outside the state. Well, credit credit for the uh, creative uh, individual who <laughs> put two and two together on that and found you. And that, and I think there's a couple points to talk about there. Uh, one is is you, you kind of never know in those opportunities, and even if it's not a frequent thing, it was an impactful thing to to both the university and to you, right? It brought you two together. So that's yeah. that's pretty awesome. Um, have you contemplated? I mean, you had roots in Oklahoma, but surely there was something more than that. Have you thought about that, or maybe even have as you tell the story to others, have you given any feedback on 
something you may have done that would have helped or do you think it was just a bit of luck or, or how, what do you chalk that up to? So I'm both crediting and discounting LinkedIn at the same time. I mean, I get my, my uh, profile up to date, you know, and and it's good for networking purposes, but I, I never ever thought that people actually used it for employment, which is, I think what it was intended for. Sure. So I think for me, um, it was just having that, being at the right place at the right time and being open to new opportunities. Um, you know, with the Department of Defense, I've been doing basically the same job for for 10 years. And while, you know, I, I succeeded at it and was, was very good at it, you know, doing the same thing for 10 years may wear on people. And so this was an opportunity for me to get into a more operational situation, not um, policy driven specifically or you know development of a new you know weapons platform or or communications platform and trying to bake in security into that uh, from an engineering perspective this was really going to be you know boots on the ground we're stopping bad guys which i hadn't had that experience so it was certainly appealing to me again i you know i don't know the planets aligned to make that happen and and it was right for my family and right for me. And we've really enjoyed it. You made a couple of changes there. And I think it's important for the listener to kind of outline that. One, and you hit on this a little bit, the DOD job was more assurance, right? Policy. I mean, there were some systems engineering in there from what I recall, but it, it's, it's, a, it's an assurance position. It's mapping to requirements effectively, if, if I'm not mistaking the role. Whereas... As you started, you know, you were at uh, the university, it's a managing director of uh, operations and, and architecture. Those are two very different things, right? That's, that's two very different missions. It's two different perspectives. So now you're a defender and right. that's one change. And then going from that management defense tactics, then shift to CISO, which you alluded to at the beginning. So those are two very big changes. Anything in that first shift that you were concerned about going into, meaning, so, hey, I'm an assurance guy, I'm a DOD guy, I'm going to go from there to university and go from assurance to defense. Did did you lose any confidence in that process at all? Were you worried about that? Uh, Well, certainly, I think anytime you, you make a change like that, you are a little concerned. But I think I was... Having been so steeped in, in policy and governance, that I felt pretty confident, you know, coming into a new environment that I at least know how it should be. I think what I was not prepared for, and what was the biggest culture shock, was how big that gap was coming to an education environment and, and hearing just, you know, mingling with other higher ed institutions and, and seeing that it's pretty much the same across the board that. While maybe not adhering to a specific policy governance like the CIS controls or you know NIST uh, cybersecurity framework, the security is being done. It just happens to be either very ad hoc or tribal knowledge or something that that someone who's been in the position for fifteen or twenty years has just been handling. Right. So that was kind of my biggest 
you know, aha moment was, well, we have a lot of opportunity to try to implement, you know, best practices based on tried and true standards like the NIST framework. So that was, you know, for me, that was uh, actually a, a really good background to make that time kind of transition. Now, the second one from kind of that operational perspective to to more management direction as a CISO uh, had its own challenges, right? Let's pause there because that's yeah. a whole another career journey that I think is worth covering. So you, you're the CISO now, but you didn't used to be. Right. And there was a CISO before. So take us back. You're the security operations manager kind of position, managing director. I don't remember the exact title, but you're in that role. Right. And there's a CISO. And then that person was let go. So they're let go. You're in that position. What are things like? How long was it before there's a CISO? What is in your mind as a, as a, what advice? Again, tell the story from the lens of if somebody else is in that spot. So you're a, you're one of the lieutenants and the head guy gets let go or head gal gets let go. How did you act and what was the opportunity that came as a result of that? Man, that was, it was an interesting time period. Um, and it's not the first time that it happened. About nine months after I started, our CISO left and he went back to the East Coast where he had come from. And again, we were kind of in this empty position for about a year. And so, you know, I'm new to the university and I, you know, it really does take about 12 months really to, to, and I would say at most positions to really figure out the climate and what the ins and outs are and, and who to talk to. And it might even be, you know, more difficult at a, at a large bureaucratic institution like university. So, you know, I'm trying to do as much as I can to keep things going. We had, you know, one of the AVPs and IT kind of shouldering half the load. So that in and of itself really kind of threw me to the fire and and found those relationships and the people who can help and really learn the ins and outs of our, our IT organization. So fast forward four years and the same thing happens again, except this time the CISOs let go. We're undergoing huge organizational changes uh, because of, of a new university president, you know, and we're consolidating IT groups across campuses and making one kind of central IT organization. And, and maybe it was because of the prior experience, I kind of knew what to expect. Um, I'd been in the role for a while. At this point, I, I you know, had made relationships and, and kind of built those trusts across campus and, and in IT. And, and again, we were without a um, CISO for about a year. The challenge really was we're, we're kind of going through this organizational merger and not having um, really any direct leadership or strategy direction. So we're trying to make this work, but also trying to stay in our lane. And it was, it was kind of crazy. Let's go there. So what advice uh, do you have if you don't have, what you're saying is, is you didn't have an executive sponsor. Right. So there's, there's lots of politics going on well above you in rooms that you're never going to be invited in, probably not at least then at that level, at that, at that, at that station. And you're trying to do your day job, but you're also needing to get things done. 
like things approved and changes made and whatever else you got to do, but you don't got anybody to talk to. So you don't have an advocate. And this is now the second time you've had to go through this. So what helped you be successful? If anything, you talked about relationships and that made the second time a little easier, but is there anything else that you found that was helpful for anyone listening who isn't yet the CISO or at a certain level and their boss gets fired, what do you do is kind of the question I'm asking. So anything else that was helpful? Well, certainly you can't let anything slack, right? You still have to to perform at least at the same level, level, if not, you know, performing at a higher level, you know, when there's not that kind of overhead that you're used to because you get more scrutiny. And you know, I think that the people making that call about who's going to be next, how's that going to look? I think, you know, they want to see how you handle on the pressure. Are you maintaining, um, you know, falling behind? Are you doing anything, you know, new or innovative to try to cover things while there's no leadership? So that would be my first recommendation is, you know, you have to at least maintain a high level of performance. I know it can be distressing because there is no true leadership direction as far as strategy and what you should be working toward. So that means you just got to keep doing your job the best you can and your teams to maintain that high level. Um, I think the second thing is all of those intangibles, um, talking about making those relationships or repairing relationships. Um, I, you know, there's certainly one person that I had to kind of, you know, take take them out and and either have some lunch or, or grab a coffee and kind of just level set again and set expectations. And that's really you got to let go of some of the technical stuff if you want to step into you know a, a leadership position like the CISO. You got to understand it, but you're not going to be the one. You know, I, I can no longer be the guy running incidents um, and showing, you know, the junior uh, personnel how to do that. So it becomes a lot more about relationship management, um, looking at the bigger picture and how security can step into, let's say, um, a CRM project right, or, you know, something else and, and start finding ways that to to you know, ingratiate yourself into larger IT picture instead of being that department of no. But Aaron, that's a big change though. I mean, we've talked about it on the show before, but you have to really want to make that change. There's a big damn difference between running IR and trying to have political justification or or alliances at an executive level, especially at a university, which has kind of multiple layers of of politics that go on, right? That's, Mm -hmm. That's sort of there's, there's many sort of different gravities that pull on things. Some of them are difficult to see. You've got to want to make that change. Oh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did you then decide that that was the path that you should go, right? You're the stock manager. You're, you're in charge of your own area. You're, you're picking up some new things. You've made, already made a transition from out of DOD to ed and then from, from kind of policy to defense. And now you're running that program. What made you decide to to change again, to say, okay, well, let me, let me try to push on and develop some of my leadership skills when I don't officially have that title just yet, seemingly. Right. right? 
I mean, I admit, I um, I think generally I knew that I I wanted to be kind of in a in a people management type of um, role, but I, I'll admit the OU was was very supportive and and even pushed me. Um, one of my mentors, especially in IT, just supported me in, in taking leadership classes. OU actually had a uh, have a has a very good one. That is an eight month program that's very in depth. And we take, you know, we have one day a month where we meet and, and go through exercises and have a lot of homework and stuff. So I felt really supported by the university. Um, and I, and I feel like they kind of helped groom me to prepare me for, you know, this type of leadership position. What do you think? If somebody doesn't feel like that they're that supportive, but they're looking maybe outside their organization for support for growth, you had that inside. Mm-hmm. What's one or two things that that they provided that somebody could maybe go get on the outside? You mentioned a, a long-term program. You mentioned mentorship. I mean, what do you think was the most important thing to get you to that next level? That's a tough question. I mean... Like I said, I, I did have a lot of internal support, but you know, outside of of work, I was a scoutmaster. I uh, went through something in scouting called Wood Badge. It's a you know a, a very intense leadership training program. And, and while yes, the focus is on maybe Boy Scouts, those concepts kind of transcend right any domain. Sure. And through other kind of um, leadership opportunities that I've had in, in service outside of, of work and in the community. You know, I just, I have taken those opportunities over the course of, uh, of my life, I suppose, that ultimately kind of builds up your skills. So if, I think if you're looking for leadership opportunities and you don't have that support inside the organization, you know, I would look at, at, you know, how do you get involved with charitable organizations? Because they always need volunteers and they always need leadership. Right. There's plenty of resources, books about leadership, but it's really when when the rubber hits the road, so to speak, and you're you know doing it, that you pick up on those communication skills and, and organization skills and management skills if you're not getting that kind of on the job. No doubt. You know, there's even people that no matter how little we think we know, there's somebody who uh, knows less that has fewer experiences that would love the opportunity just to get some a half an hour of coaching uh, over, you know, so it's, you know, kind of the, the lesson that I learned a long time ago coming out of a kind of a, a crisis was you can go far uh, if you just stop and pause and you know be nice and put someone else first. And often those people are somebody who may not ever be able to repay you, certainly not in the near term. You're not doing it for that, but I mean, you're taking time to say, okay, like let's let's talk about career a little bit. And that's a, a very one-on-one kind of application to that. But uh, I'm happy to hear that your organization has not only a leadership program, but one that that you found useful. There's many organizations that have leadership programs, but a lot of times they're not worth a damn. Right. To have that to get both is, is fantastic. I, I want to pivot to something else. As I understand it, when you were moving into this leadership position, you know, you're part of a large organization with many campuses. And there was 
it was kind of decentralized, I think, at one point. Yep. And part of your ascension uh, involved centralizing some of that. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, it was. Uh, so historically, the OU campuses have operated very independently from academics to IT to budgets. I mean, you name it. And basically, the only thing we had in common was the OU logo, even to the Board of Regents, you know, treating each campus differently. So two years ago, the longtime president uh, retired. And and so that kind of instituted or instigated a lot of change. I think some of it may have been long overdue and some of it, you know, new and you know interesting for, for OU. So that kind of kicked off this consolidation effort really um, from top to bottom across, like I said, academics and IT. And so whereas each campus had one CIO, each had a CIO and their own IT spend, uh, we now have consolidated to one CIO and one IT budget. But also a technology change, right? So budgeting is getting centralized. So decisions are getting centralized. Is that is there anything that you did? I mean, so again, applying this to kind of the larger listener, you are having to navigate this with some grace. You are having to find a way, or maybe not. I mean, sometimes you just have to kind of be the sledgehammer as well. But what are some, some in this consolidation, again, there's this ascension into executive leadership. There's now this sort of probably an irritating responsibility to have to consolidate and deal with new sets of challenges all for the betterment of the program, but any advice that you had through that? I mean, what's any observations that you had? You're like, man, I wish I would have done that differently. Yeah. So, you know, I think the biggest hurdle was, as you mentioned, the kind of this technology standardization, right? And it's especially difficult, I think, from our our constituency perspective, because while the faculty are state employees and are working toward tenure, they also kind of act as, you know, like we have three to 5,000 independent contractors because they all get their own, you know, grant monies and, and they want to, you know, have so many different ideas to explore and don't want to be, have to conform to, you know, a, a standard way of doing things. And, and even inside IT, you know, we were used to doing things one way and now we're merging with another organization who's used to doing it another way. And those that can create friction, right, and and contention. So that was really, I think, the toughest thing is, as technologists, we tend to be passionate about the stuff that we like, and so trying to bring that together um, in in a in a way that not only made fiscal sense but kind of helped ease people's pain about having to switch from one technology or another. That was probably the biggest difficulty is, is just managing people's feelings and how they felt about, you know, a technology that they've been using. And as you said, sometimes, you know, one campus was the hammer. We're, you know, we've been doing it this way. We're bigger. We're going to do this way. Then it was, you know, well, I can see that you guys have more efficiencies here. You know, I, I can concede that, you know, maybe that technology would be better to standardize on. So a lot of negotiation. Certainly some some tough conversations to have. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone is working toward, you know, supporting the university. And while I think maybe some feelings might have been hurt because of one decision or another, I think ultimately, you know, people can kind of come together when necessary. Now, 
the people who couldn't left the organization. And we certainly did see a wave of people who just were uncomfortable with this amount of change. So we were cut pretty deep, but I think we're now at a point where we, we've done most of the cuts, most of the consolidation, most of the standardization. And now we can work on people and processes and maybe even improvements in technology as we move forward. I think that along with that, I think maybe on the high side of what we talked about, there's kind of three remaining things that I really want to cover on the show with the time remaining. One was kind of this grassroots campaign for cybersecurity and your teaching. The other is a club you started and last sort of the sock you've created, which I think there's a, a sort of a student-led uh, organization. I want to go back to the the top there with with um, this campaign and your teaching. I think might be a a benefit to those if you're if you want to teach and maybe want to be a CISO at a university. And what's that what's that been like as a as an adjunct? Was it always fun? Was it difficult? What what did you learn out of that? <laughs> well, it's it's certainly unique. It's been unique, I think, for OU just because we don't have, you know, a kind of full fledged four year cyber degree program. And I think a lot of other four-year institutions do. And so I think we're a little behind in that. And so not only me, but my predecessors and even coworkers, you know, ha- have done, um, you know, guest lectures and, and other kind of things. But there have never been, you know, really a, a course dedicated towards cybersecurity. So I was actually approached by a student, one of our student employees. And said, hey, I'm in this this program. We've always had a cyber degree or a cyber, uh, excuse me, class on on the docket, but no one's ever taught it. And I thought maybe you might want to. (laughs) And so, again, it was just one of those kind of opportunities that just um, presented itself out of the blue. So I jumped on it and I went and talked to the program director and, and she was very nice, very accommodating, and and basically said, if you want to do it, it's all yours. Uh, whereas I was coming into it like a job interview, but she, you know, like I said, was was happy to do it. She said the only thing is, typically an adjunct, you know, is handed, you know, the course material, and they just teach it. In this case, I had to come up with all the course material. Um, so that was, a that was unique. I'd never taught before. Um, you know, certainly I've never had any, um, official training in pedagogy or anything like that. So while it was always something I really wanted to do, I had, you know, this was, I was really coming at it from scratch. Unfortunately, you know, I, I had some good resources reach out in the OKC metro area. I had um, some great online resources and so put together a class as basically just cybersecurity essentials right based on uh, the security plus and and was able to start teaching that so uh that's kind of how it came to be and and it's been a lot of fun what's your okay so that's roughly based on the 10 domains right Right. from so what's your favorite chapter of that or favorite domain (laughs) that's a hard question Honestly, I think the first domain that talks about risk is is probably the fundamental, right? Right. All the others are based on that because if you're not assessing risk and and knowing about assets and threats and vulnerabilities, then the rest 
doesn't really matter. So I think that's maybe not my favorite, but probably act with my academic hat on. That's probably my favorite. <laughs> sure. One of the things we talked about uh, that I think you you you've kind of had issue with about our industry is kind of this idea that getting a job in security that in most cases you need experience right. uh, ultimately to get a job. And so even if you have a full program, the door that's often slammed in one's face is, well, you know, in order to get this job, you need experience, but to get experience, you, you need a job, right? So this is an issue. It's one that you brought up kind of naturally in our chat. So how the hell do we fix this? And how do we find ourselves in this sort of dumb situation? Right. From your perspective. Yeah. Well, going, you know, going back to the issue. So, I mean, I mentioned that I, the cyber community is pretty small here. And so just having talked with, you know, industry counterparts in the area, just talking about, you know, lack of talent um, or this need for experience, you know, it, it became clear to me that our graduates coming out of, of OU are having a really hard time landing solid, you know, cyber focused jobs. And then talking to other higher eds, you know, at, at conferences like Educause and, and our, on our ISAC, seeing the same thing, just really across the board, unless you live in, you know, like I said, one of those areas where there's a lot of, of um, cyber activity, it's really difficult. So that, that kind of is what prompted me to, to start working more with students, you know, setting up our SOC and hiring students. How we got here, you know, I, I think the biggest problem is that we, in our industry, we put so much on kind of these new kids that we burn them out real quick. But mm. at the same time, you don't want someone coming in and handling your company risk because so right. much is based on IT. So we've created this paradox where you, you can't get a job without experience, but you need experience to get the job. I think it'll take some more time for that to even out. Well, I mean, how do we, so from your position, I think you've done a couple of things to help in your own way with that issue. Um, I know you started a, a student organization. Mm -hmm. uh, I know you've got kind of a student sock. Before we get into those, I mean, why do you think that, you know, we even see job recs, if you go out and browse, you know, LinkedIn or the internet for these job requirements that are even absurd. They don't even represent reality. I mean, how, how culturally did we get into that position? What do you just, what do you think? I mean, how, what's your opinion? I know there's no perfect answer, but I mean, why are we self-defeating in that way? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure there's a good answer. I know from experience with other companies that, you know, you don't have technologists writing recs for technology positions hmm. or you have someone in a technology leadership role who came from let's say administration or you know maybe not grew up in a technology type of position so i, I think that's probably one challenge um, is that people who have grown up in the industry aren't writing those recs or there's an expectation from you know, the CIO that's downward directed that that we need this, you know, quality of of individual. 
and, and you know, and, and the crazy thing is, is we hear the statistic every year. We have hundreds of thousands of unfilled cyber positions. True. But, you know, if we're not giving people a chance, then that's going to continue to get bigger. Now, I will say, I think there's a lot more opportunity to transition, you know, from from maybe a feeder type of role into cybersecurity. And that's probably where we as, as technologists need to provide more opportunity and say, well, if you're in a feeder, you've been doing networking, well, that will transition, you know, easily into, let's say, an incident analyst type of position or, you know, and provide those types of pathways rather than you got to come out of school with a four year degree in cyber or whatever it might be. Well, we've got to find, I believe we have to find that middle ground and we can't just, I am absolutely sick of hearing that, well, there's such this talent gap and that's why we can't get things done. And this is, there is a talent gap, but I'm tired of seeing leaders use it as an excuse. And I'm even more tired of them, uh, not me, not seeing anything, uh, in terms of them doing something about it, uh, in some way. Right. And you mentioned these feeder roles, which is to me kind of a way to meet in the middle, uh, to say, are there existing characteristics or experiences of this person, or sometimes just want to, Give me somebody with with want to. Give me an intern with some want to, and we right. can start there, right? And so I think it is a if we sort of ignore just using this gap as an excuse deprives us the opportunity to solve the real issue, uh, in my opinion. And so I think one of the things you've done, kind of leading into the the, the maybe the last point is a couple of years ago you built a sock, mm-hmm. um, and it had a kind of a a higher ed slash student slant to it. Tell us a story about that. What what prompted you to build the sock and and how is that going today? Yeah. Well, I think it was geez, what, two or three years ago now. And we had the right talent as far as I think senior leadership. We'd gotten you know, we were at a place with tooling and and with our sim that we felt, you know, we'd go official with our sock. Plus it was a marketing opportunity. And then third a way to engage students. And so we were able to hire three or four students just to be tier ones initially. To And, and these students came from all kinds of back, backgrounds. I would say most of them have been in STEM related fields, but, you know, we've had math majors, computer engineering, computer science. So um, really all over the board. And so and with you know, they came and interviewed and they didn't know what DNS was or, you know, just kind of basic networking concepts like that. So right. We're taking these raw students and really giving them an opportunity to jump in feet first. And, and we didn't hold back. You know, we had them sign NDAs and, and kind of privacy type of documents, but they, you know, really were hungry for it and jumped in um, to look at compromised accounts, malicious activity. And they're doing, you know, the bulk of, of the triaging for these, which relieves some of that pressure off of, of our tier twos and tier threes. So they, like I said, they've really been hungry for it. Not only that, but they've wanted to, you know, develop scripts, you know, help, program APIs and do other things to help automate some of the things that they've been doing um, and documenting and all these things that we wanted to do, 
and right. just never had enough time or or skill set to do. So, you know, we've had we have two students now who've been with us since the beginning, and they're they're absolutely fantastic. Over the course of three years, we've had maybe three or four more who've come through either in the summer or just for one year or even one semester. And we've had them go out and one is doing phenomenal work in data analytics at Coke Industries. Yep. One works um, here in Oklahoma City for the FAA. And one went to work at one of the uh, local Indian tribes. And so it's really been fantastic to see them get that experience. I mean, I still have, uh, you know, vendor reps asking me, hey, next time you have one free, have them call me. <laughs> Yeah, so so this is this is I think important. You have the student operated sock that's doing, or at least part of it's student operated, and it's doing sort of the tier one, maybe some tier two. You don't have a degree program that aligns with this. So you have students that are coming to you from other disciplines that are then learning this, and it sounds like they're going and then getting jobs as a product of this sock. Not necessarily, and I I, I mean no disrespect to anyone's other degree or degree programs or any other field of study, but it seems to be there's enough of a enough of a draw or demand that that is the 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 thing that they're getting pulled into to do professionally. Is that a is that an accurate statement? Oh definitely. It, and you know, and that that was the challenge I think is is a lot of industries, at least when I talk to the people here, don't really know what to do with a new graduate, right? Because they if they don't have the experience, then you really got to start from the beginning and teach them what DNS means. But, you know, these new grads are, are like I said, hungry. I mean, they're excited. They want to start working. Uh, they they want to learn. They want to contribute. So I don't think a lot of firms know how to take that energy and, and channel it the right way. And so, you know, what we've seen is we couple that with whatever degree program they're getting, because that's pretty much all anyone cares about is that you actually graduated and couple them with, you know, just a little bit of experience, 15, 20 hours a week right? or a couple of semesters. And they know enough to, to talk the talk and to, you know, demonstrate some skills. And that gives them just enough edge to put them into a role that they can really take off with. It completely changes the tone of the interview. Mm -hmm. So if you place one of these kids or young people, take one that wasn't a part of this sock and one that was and send them to the same interview. And I'd argue even if one that has maybe better grades, maybe even is, is maybe even more intelligent, but you take the applied examples. If these kids can tell a story or an example of, hey, how did you lead an investigation? Or how does malware infect an endpoint? How does it get there? What's the uh, indication that you've had a uh, credential misuse? How do you tell if you know, any of these questions and answers completely changes the way the interview goes? In fact, they may not even have to interview. And in, in, like, I mean, honestly, I mean, it, it may be enough to say, yeah, this kid worked in a sock for a year during college. Yeah. So is that a lesson? Well, let me put it to you. Who's this a lesson to? Who's this? Who, who's this product? So there's this machine that's the sock and students go through it and they get jobs. Who is that a lesson to? Who, who should take notice of that? Well, that's a good question. You know, what I'm seeing is 
were not getting enough training earlier in their careers. I mean, really, we need to be start targeting high school, maybe even middle school to talk about these career programs, the technologies and giving them opportunities even to just tour a sock and look at what they're doing and just kind of opening, you know, avenues in the mind, you know, of what might be possible. Um, even if they attend a school that doesn't have a cyber degree program, knowing that they can, you know, move into one of these roles. And I, and I think we need to send this message to other institutions and businesses and say, look, you know, you take someone who, like you said, who's hungry, who's enthusiastic and may or may not have any background in security and put them in the role and try it out. And, you know, we haven't had a bad experience yet. Now, I will say one of our students, uh, he's computer engineering and he does not want to pursue a career in cyber because of his experience here. Now, it doesn't diminish his capability, but he said, look, I've, I've been able to determine this is not right for me. That's a win. That's perfect. That's what young people should be doing, figuring out. It, sometimes it's better to figure out, hell, I don't want to do that. That's no fun. You gave a gift to that person. And, and we paid him along the way. So you know, it's been a win-win for him. What's that job pay? We Well, it depends. You start at ten fifty, I believe. But our, those two that have been here for a while have gotten a raise every year. So I think they're about 13 or $14 an hour. Yeah. So that's for, for a college position to do that part-time. At, at at university and get the experience and the pay, mm -hmm. you are. I think that's what Franklin said, right? You're 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 wealthy uh, in that way, right? You're um, appreciating what you have is the first piece of that. What Franklin would have said, but that's yeah, and it, and it really helps us. I mean, you're, you're college rich. Wow. So okay, I'm going to put this out there. If if there's and we've had some other guests that I think would be interested in this, but. If just in general, and we, we don't have time to go deep into this sort of student sock, and maybe we, we will another time, but um, I, I've, I've had my share of building response and analytic teams and doing a fair amount of response in my past. This message, I think, is important uh, for, I think, universities to hear, for, for program owners, but even you're doing it without really a program to tie it to, which I think is, is pretty amazing. And, and you're already saying that the industry is sort of buying into this. I think it's a message that a larger group of people need to hear. And, and I think you could do, if you haven't already, you mentioned Educause, to do a presentation on this. I mean, have you ever presented on this before? I have not, although I will say a couple of years ago, I, I kind of felt like at Educause, it was the year of the student sock. I mean, was it? Okay. Several other universities had talked about it, which kind of put the idea in our mind and and they were right. I mean, it's been immensely successful. You know, you can do it relatively cheaply because, again, you're only paying them minimum wage or better, slightly better. And we've really enjoyed having them just participate with us. You have changed the direction of their lives, hopefully for the better. There's one student that's like, ain't for me. Sorry, I'm not doing it. <laughs> But you you were doing something, you're providing them the educational experience that they're receiving from 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 your institution is incredibly enriched as a result of this. They're getting hands-on experience that's making their interview process relevant, right? Uh, and 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 easier. 
and it's preparing them for life. Uh, and I think that is uh, something you should be proud of. And I, what I, where I was going is, I think if this is something that, you know, it, maybe the year of the student sock is the thing mm-hmm. already been covered, but I think it, it's something that's, um, you know, maybe the odds you faced were even greater because uh, there's not a really a program to tie it to. So you're sort of got the maybe the most difficult uh, job in this. But if it's ever something you want to cover, I'm happy to actually cover it with you. If there's okay. a as somebody who has from the industry side, right, not only as a now uh, a vendor with Exabeam, but also uh, somebody who's built as a defender uh, and was an engineer, an intrusion analyst, and then an executive running these types of programs. Uh, we hired a lot of interns, and uh, I think it's something that's still overlooked. Um, maybe well covered uh, in academia, but I think in a larger sense, you know, for example, how can industry help support your program? Right. If there, is there one, you know, if, if there's one thing that somebody could do, what would that be? And how would they go about it, right? Well, and I think you nailed it with the internships. I mean, it's so common in, you know, law or business or you know accounting and finance i mean lots of other i guess degree programs have this expectation of of internship and that's going to help you get the experience you need to get a good job and we don't have that expectation in the technology industry so i and it really what does it cost them except maybe a little bit of time and that's one person has to invest in this student and help them feel like a part of a team and let them contribute and work on a project. You know, I don't think that that is asking too much, especially from some of the larger technology companies. So, you know, if we want to have our students get that kind of experience before they come into a job interview, then I think internships might be the way to go for, you know, these businesses to start cultivating it, you know, generation of of cyber professionals well i mean i think even even if you let's say for some reason you don't have uh room for paid internships let's pretend that you don't have that you said it earlier even doing in this case in this example a sock tour even doing job shadowing to say hey look i don't have the budget which happens sometimes right but you say look if you want to come in a couple times and sit with the tier one analysts like that still counts right you know, so you're generally familiar with the organization, all of that. You know, and, and, you know, before we run out of time, I do want to plug another way to get involved is through some of the like ISC Squared chapters or ISSA. On campus, uh, we started a cyber competition club. And this lets kids who are not, maybe not, you know, focused on a STEM program, but at least you know, our hobbyists of of computers or technology gives them a way to interact with other kids and participate in competitions like National Cyber League and, and some of these other other kind of hacking or, or capture the flag activities where they are exposed to these concepts and may provide, again, some of those maybe job skills or at least knowing the lingo coming into some of these job interviews. Um, so that club has been um, successful. It's, we're still, you know, under 20 members for after our first year, but this year we're growing. And even through all the COVID stuff, we're finding ways of connecting with new students. And we had our first competition last year, and it's just been a whole lot of fun engaging with students in a non-professional way. 
um, and being their sponsor. And, and again, all it takes is time. I don't have to put up any money to help right. them. And we've just gotten donations from, from vendors and other individuals to help support the club. And it's been just really exciting to see maybe non-standard computer people, you know, really getting into, find, you know, learning about cryptography or open source Intel and all these other kind of topics. So it's been a lot of fun. Some of the best people I know uh, in industry did not come from a necessarily a technology or a security background. They were math majors. They were music majors. They were coming from some other place. And uh, they're, by, by most measures, the most brilliant and interesting. Uh, so you have 20 people. What's one way, I mean, if you want to plug the the name or if you have a website or if there's, what's one way that, are you donation-based? Are you, um, how, when people help, how do they help from the outside? Yeah, so first year we were completely donation-based. And so I reached out to some of my, you know, industry peers, um, friends that I knew and and their businesses or organizations were able to help contribute to our cause. So if you're if you're interested, it's C3 at OU.edu. So it's the Cyber Competition Club is the official name. Or you can always email me directly. And, uh, you know, you can find me on the OU website. You know, we'll definitely put you in contact with the, the current president. Or, you know, if you we do have a blog that's kind of going that outlines their activities and and you know, trying to, sometimes it is kind of like herding cats and getting them to you know, do some things like take notes and take time to build the website. But, you know, we are getting that all put together and, and it's, it's really been great. I, you know, and we try to promote our vendor sponsorship as much as possible. And we, we put together challenge coins for kind of our founding members and, and for our founding sponsors. Uh, so it's it's really been a lot of fun, but yeah, it's c3 at ou.edu. You can you know reach out, and we will you know find a way to to you know fit you into our club. We will uh, in the show notes and on social, we will provide links to that. We'll reference this, and I think that one of the things we didn't get into is you know kind of some we may have to edit part of the earlier show out so we fit it in nicely. But um, you started a CTF. You know, I assume that there's other meets, other national groups, or other events that you then sign up to participate in, or and is that is that an accurate statement? So you agree as a group to then sort of accept the challenge of of someone else's event, correct? It is. It is. So the I think the biggest one and probably that has the most national attention is called the NCL or National Cyber League, and they have an event twice a year, both in the spring and the fall. It is geared specifically toward college age and high school age teams and individuals. So that's that was our first competition. Um, none of our group had ever done anything like that before. It is CTF style. So you know, you're given a question and you have to find either find the answer or find the flag yep. uh, to get credit for the response. And, you know, the National Cyber League probably has 2,000 teams or participants, and it's growing every year. And they may have had more. Well, I'm sure they had more now that I think about it, because as newbies, we were put in the bronze bracket. <laughs> so, And there's three brackets. So, And there were about 2,000 in our bracket. So, I mean, just tons of kids from all over the university 
and they give you a ranking and they kind of show your highlights and, and that page is permanent. So you can yeah. put that on your resume and say, look, this was, I did like this, my first competition ever. And yeah. there might be some room for improvement, you know, or maybe I did awesome. You know, every year you can build on that. Yeah. Here's the, here's the measure of my involvement. That's fantastic. We'll include all that information in the show notes and uh, make sure we highlight that. Thanks for calling that out. And uh, Aaron, one final question that I ask every guest, pursuant to the name of the show, uh, the new CISO, what does is, what is being a new CISO mean to you? That's probably the hardest question you've asked. <laughs> There's so much on on leadership out there. And and I think what's important is that that each individual find their kind of unique leadership style. And it should be based on your personality because that's what got you there in, in, to begin with. I mean, everyone can kind of learn principles of, of both leadership and technology, but it's something about you, something about your personality that got you to where you are. So that's what I would want. The first thing I'd recommend is just continue to be you. Second is learn how to adapt. Uh, you know, there's a lot of changes, you know, and I expressed some of those. I had to let go of, of being in the technology and trying to architect everything. And that's no longer my job. My job is to provide some guide rails and, and some strategy for, you know, my direct reports and, and have them work closely with their direct reports. And so being open-minded and, and adaptable and, and open to change. Uh, and then third, try to layer some confidence on top of all of that. So it's certainly a juggling act, but I think your your team looks to you for the strategy and the confidence. So you have to have, you know, you have to be able to show them that you do know what you're doing, even if you're covering it up. So that would be my top three is be who you are. That's what got you there be adaptable, and then be confident in the choices you make. Excellent advice. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Steve. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.